the pen. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You're listening to 3CR. 855am, 3CR Digital, and streaming on 3cr.org.au. The following show is a repeat and may contain some out-of-date information. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we welcome back Camilia El Ariani to give us an update on the situation in Yemen. My name is Camilia El Ariani. I'm lecturer and tutor I'm at Melbourne University School of Social and Political Sciences, but also I am a postdoc research fellow at the same uh, department. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, since we last spoke to you in 2019, the crisis in Yemen has only increased. If you can, just to begin with, could you please remind the listeners what the war is about? Sure. Uh, first, thanks, uh, Giselle, for having me on again. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, understanding the, the current uh, war, uh, it began in March 2015, um, and it was waged by the Saudi, uh, Saudi-led coalition, backed by the U.S. and the U.K. and other Western countries. The coalition was um, also joined by other Arab states, and notably the United Arab uh, Emirates, that has played a key role in this war. Um, the Saudi coalition claims that the war, um, the war's aim has been to ward off the Iranian Shiite expansionist agenda in the otherwise Sunni Arabian Peninsula. And Saudi Arabia claims that Iran is seeking to advance its agenda through its support for the Zaidi, um, the Zaidi group and Salah or the Houthis. Um, and, and in military operations of Farhadi, then they, uh, then the president escaped. So, 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 so this is this is basically what was the claim to kind of you know prevent any expansion expansionist agenda for for Iranian in in the Arabian Peninsula. So what happened is that after the Houthis captured uh, the capital city Sana'a in, in September 2014, after and and then there was some sort of negotiations with Hadi political negotiations that eventually kind of collapsed. The Houthis put Hadi under house arrest. And then um, after that, um, he fled to Riyadh. And uh, from there, probably a few weeks later, the coalition announced the decisive storm operation, military operation to retain, uh, reinstall the uh, Hadi government. And I think it's, it's very important to mention here that um, Saudi intervention in Yemeni political affairs is, it hasn't started in 2015. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been muddling in, in Yemeni politics since the 1960s, and the reason is that because Yemen uh, is the only republican um, state in the Arabian Peninsula among its six uh, monarchies. Um, so anything always kind of the Saudi Arabia um, has seen whatever happens in Yemen is, has the potential to spill over to, to Saudi Arabia. And here we're talking about any political changes or political conflicts or demands even for political change. Well, it is um, being called one of the greatest humanitarian crises of the current period. Um, 
there have been many attempts to um, try to have a, a ceasefire or a truce. On April the 1st, a UN envoy announced a two-month truce in Yemen. Can you explain to the listeners what this truce was about and is it a pathway to a peace agreement or is it merely a temporary ceasefire or even not even a ceasefire? Um, <clears throat> yes, you're right. There was on, on April 1st, uh, Hans Grandberg, the UN um, uh, envoy to Yemen, announced the truce for two months. And uh, what came out of it is that the warring parties agreed to halt the military operations for the next couple of months. And the coalition promised easing the embargo on fuel entering the Houthi-held Red Sea port of Hodeida and um, also promised to reopen Sana'a airport and, and allow uh, commercial flights to and in from the capital Sana'a from the first time since 2016. So the parties also committed to resume negotiations over uh, road access to Taiz, and the city uh, central in central Yemen has been under Houthis. Um, uh, the Houthis have besieged the the city uh, since 2016, and, and Taiz is a very strategic kind of uh, uh, city in Yemen that connects simply the north uh, to the south of Yemen. What happened so far is that from all these kind of points that they agreed upon is that the airport hasn't, hasn't been opened yet. Um, and it seems like one or two fuel ships have, have been allowed to enter the port of Hodeida. Uh, but there are also some, um, news that there was some escalation in Marib as well. So, uh, the facts or the kind of the truth, whether it's going to lead to any kind of sustainable or sustained kind of political and, uh, solution that will lead to uh, a peaceful future for Yemen, that remains um, under a big question mark, especially with this um, new development following Hadi transferring his power to a new presidential council. And I think we're going to, in any case, we're going to talk about this uh, in more detail later. Well, in the past year, there's been talk of an imminent peace agreement in Yemen with a revival in diplomatic talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia for the first time since relations broke off in 2016, being interpreted as one sign that an agreement is likely. Yet in recent months, we've seen not only an increase in the violence, and you talked a little bit about this, but an escalation in the regional conflict. Um, we saw Houthi m- missiles landing in the United Arab Air- Emirates for the first time. Can you talk a bit about what is driving the rumours of the agreement, as well as the apparent escalation of violence on the ground? Um, to be honest, I haven't been following these uh, talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran very closely. But to my knowledge, the two parties met in, ba- in Baghdad's conference last year to initiate a series of uh, meetings and talks to discuss regional security and to find solutions to some of the outstanding regional security issues. And of course, Yemen is one of those issues. From past meetings between the two states, Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, it has been clear that diplomacy has not been very successful in mending their relationship or reaching any sustainable agreement, especially because Saudi Arabia has been always suspicious about Iran's uh, intentions and commitment to deals. Um, and of course, intentions in the, in the Arabian Peninsula first and in the Arab world in general and, and supporting the Houthis in Yemen, you know, it's like kind of, uh, a nightmare comes, comes, becomes a reality and it kind of basically confirms Saudi's anxiety, um, and, and suspicion about Iran. 
Although, I mean, many observers argue that Iran initially was not involved with, with the Houthis, and it was the Saudi war itself that actually brought Iran into this proxy war. That is, you know, where Yemen is its, uh, uh, its ground. And it was Saudi war, uh, as I said. And, and in any case, the recent talks seem very fragile and nothing more than a careful diplomatic uh, gesture from both parties. As we, you know, probably we, we, we were kind of following the Trump's term, he, he, and, and he kind of demonstrated the United States' uh, desire to hand over regional security uh, to Saudi Arabia and other regional powers, and notably Iran, but will not do that until both Iran and Saudi Arabia have shown capacity to engage in some sort of productive diplomacy. But it seems that, and, and this is based on some of the kind of analysts' kind of observation, is that it seems like um, that Iran has got more li- uh, leverage over Saudi Arabia because it showed Saudi Arabia that it can actually reach its oil field and, and attack its, its oil facilities, right? And they also see that more uh, Iran is really, what Iran is really interested in accepting to engage in these, in these kind of talks um, uh, on regional issues is mostly kind of to reestablish uh, the diplomatic relationship. So the, the West can see that um, Middle Eastern countries, Saudi Arabia and Iran particularly, can really engage diplomatically so they can withdraw and then, um, and then, you know, kind of, uh, uh, the, the region would become more independent, which I don't believe that that would be the case, um, because the kind of Western involvement is so deep and to kind of dislodge that it will take, um, years and years of changes in policies. So, so, so the thing is that Iran is interested in establishing that diplomatic relationship before offering any commitment um, in terms of, you know, kind of de-escalation. But Saudi Arabia is not interested in establishing any diplomatic relationship with Iran, but interested in getting Iran to commit. Um, So there is this kind of, you know, kind of mouse and cat kind of playing together. You know, no one is actually kind of agreeing, kind of trying to uh, uh, confirm or make any concession. And even if they kind of reach an agreement. So this is this is the thing, the things that they 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 so far seems like they haven't reached any agreement. And we heard that recently Iran has suspended the meetings and the, the talks. Right. So so in any case, if if even if they do reach any agreement, there is no guarantee that the Houthis will will agree to de-escalate simply because the peace negotiations and, though, and the, their terms do not um, go in line with what Houthis think, think is, is, is right, they will continue to take on the military option. So, so as I said, um, the escalation is, I think it, it is, it shows that whatever negotiations happen is just a facade and it's just not going anywhere. Um, it's, it's, um, it's the kind of a struggle and, um, the struggle continues. I, I want to talk a little bit about Hadi, the, the Yemeni president. And right at the beginning, you talked about um, he ha, ha, has spent some time in house arrest and then most of his presidency has been in um, Riyadh. Uh, let he, so the, the context of this is that in the last month, he transferred power to a new presidential council. Before we look at that, let's try to understand a few things about President Hadi. How did he come to power in the first place? 
Yes, um, Hadi was the vice, uh, into the, uh, here we, we have to go back. I mean, of course, the history of Hadi is, he was associated with the South, with the South, the Southern regime before unification, but he, um, um, uh, through his kind of political, political trajectory, he kind of secured a position of, um, vice, vice president, um, uh, for Saleh, uh, who ruled the country for 33 years. Um, and was ousted in 2011. And, and during the 2011 revolution, there was um, this GCC or Gulf Cooperation Council initiative that um, aimed, you know, seemingly to kind of end the crisis. But mostly the, the, the main purpose of this initiative was to uh, contain the revolution and make sure that a friendly regime will come to power so it doesn't it doesn't affect or nothing spills over to Saudi Arabia and other gulf countries so so what happened the 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 gulf um uh, the GCC initiative um uh, uh kind of stipulated Hadi as the president um and um and the thing is that the the reason Hadi was selected is because he is very he doesn't have a strong leadership he is a very weak um uh, political figure um and and eventually it was he was the the perfect candidate because um so the gulf council initiative did not mean actually kind of install a, a strong president who would make sure that you know the the kind of revolutionary demands will be implemented and and you know kind of heard and implemented so Hadi was um, was actually the perfect candidate because he basically doesn't have strong uh, leadership. So during his term, I mean, of course, that that also kind of his weakness also was was very clear during his two years that was you know kind of stipulated in the GCC initiative. Um, he didn't uh, he didn't kind of achieve any reform, and then the uh, the the initiative also renewed his his term to for two more years, and also. During these two years, he didn't do much really, and ended up in this disaster with the Houthis, which I think we're going to talk about as well in more detail. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Yemeni activist and academic Camilla El Ediani about the current situation in Yemen. I did want to say, you know, given he was a, a puppet of the Saudi Arabian government, um, it, it is argued that he turned a blind eye to the rising power of the of the Houthis. And, you know, as you talked about, they captured the, the capital, Sana'a, in 2014. Do you agree with the assessment that he turned a blind eye to their rising um, power? Because th- that wouldn't be in Saudi's interest at all. Yeah, well, it seems like what happened is that, I mean, that Hadi was lenient uh, towards Al-Houthi's expansion. And the reason was being that the parties that brought him to power, which is the GCC uh, countries and um, um, uh, countries, they had issues with the Islamic parties. Um, Islamic parties, the Islamic party, the main Islamic party in Yemen uh, is called Islah, is one of the most experienced and organized Islamic political parties in the Arab world. And um, Islah was part of the uh, transitional government that was stipulated by the GCC. And Hadi was very aware that the GCC was particularly was and, and here particularly the United Arab Emirates did not trust Islah uh, because of you know the long-standing phobia of Islamists and 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 the Gulf countries and 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 also as I said like uh, particularly uh, for Emirates. 
And uh, as a result, he turned a blind eye on the Houthis' expansion in the north um, that led to a confrontation between them and the Islah's elements. And unfortunately, had he failed to support Islah for a, a bit to push um, the Houthis back to Sada. When the Houthis captured Sana'a, because, I mean, because Hadi did not kind of act immediately, I mean, the, the, um, the result was that, uh, the Houthis captured Sana'a, and of course, Houthis were not acting on their own. They had Salah, he was, he was coming with vengeance, you know, because he, he, for him, um, kind of ruling the country was, it was not, it was, it became kind of, uh, a, a right, uh, rather than, you know, kind of subjected to democratic elections. So and and um, and of course Ali Abdullah Saleh knew um, the military and Yemeni politics through and through, simply because he's he's the one he was the the key uh, actor who orchestrated all the structure, right? So so his knowledge and also the kind of the uh, the troops or military kind of elements that was still kind of loyal to him uh, led to this uh, very quick capture of 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 uh, Sana in September of 2014. And then Hadi, um, again, he agreed to negotiate with the Houthis um, for the purpose of, you know, hoping that he will contain the conflict, uh, but on the condition that they would withdraw their militia from and troops from Sana'a. But after securing more and more concessions from Hadi government, uh, the Houthis refused to withdraw, and they started to put more demands on Hadi. And they finally asked him to put, uh, they started to put more pressure on Hadi to replace the vice president with someone who is affiliated with the Houthis. Uh, Hadi refused and resigned. Houthis put him under house arrest. And then um, he was lucky to, um, to, you know, he was able to flee um, to Saudi Arabia and weeks um, after that, the uh, the operation, the coalition operation started. Well, let's now turn to his transfer, uh, the, the transfer of power to the new presidential council. So what is the presidential council for starters? And how would you explain Hadi's resignation and, and its meaning for these um, geopolitical dynamics? Well, look, there are so many, there are some people who are kind of optimistic about it, uh, about this resignation and the kind of the, um, the establishment of this new, uh, presidential council. But what it, what it, what it seems really that what it seems like from all what is happening in these developments is that the United, the Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates are becoming more and more aware that their direct involvement, uh, through military intervention has not been successful in, in ending hostilities and establishing peace and especially um, because, you know, their, their oil facilities has been attacked, right? So what they are doing now is advocating for a political solution. And, and that's why. And then this, um, uh, the, the transfer of, 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 uh, of uh, presidency uh, responsibilities to the presidential council, it is meant to be the first step forward um, towards kind of moving forward um, to the next step, which is establishing peace or peace negotiation. But what they are doing now, uh, as you said, the, but the meeting, the, and then they organize this Riyadh meetings, um, which, you know, through it. And here I'm talking about Saudi Arabian Emirates, um, the main players here. Um, they tried to seal, consent, they sealed consent over the transfer of Paddy's power to a new presidential council. And of course, here this, they wanted to give that impression that they are interested in, in, uh, in a peaceful solution. There is a there is a big problem with this uh, development, um, in that a political solution has to be a mini solution, 
not a solution that is uh, orchestrated or concocted in the um, Gulf Castles corridors. So when the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia invited, I don't know, probably over 800 participants from political, you know, the participants had political affiliation or kind of activists um, and uh, media figures, they were they were invited not to discuss um, discuss you know the these these changes. It was literally just to inform inform them this is the changes and this is the how, the, how things are going to be. So so here we see that um, that the Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates dominating the entire political process, although from Yemeni perspectives. Many kind of uh, members who who are with the uh, with the coalition Yemen, Yemeni Yemeni uh, parties as well as for these parties they um, they they kind of emphasize that a political solution has to be Yemeni solution and Yemenis themselves have to decide who's going to come to power. But what is happening? What what Saudi Arabia and uh, Emirates are doing uh, is the opposite. The observers of the new um, presidential uh, council. Uh, believe is that um, that of course, and I, I agree with them that what the council really represents is not a, a peaceful solu- or a solution for a peaceful future of Yemen, but rather represents the interest uh, of the um, uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. It means that um, that definitely it's not a, it doesn't include any ingredients towards a, a lasting peace. So the, therefore, forming this new council did not mean that the coalition would let Yemenis decide their future. Rather, it wanted to chart the future peace in Yemen in line with its own own interest and through the, the through this particular through this council. And as as well known, the coalition began its operation to remove the Houthis and. Re- reinstall the Hadi government, but as soon as the military operation started, um, the United Arab Emirates re- revealed uh, its different agenda, leading to a clash at some point between the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia military and United Arab uh, Emirates military in Yemen. And because the uh, the, the Saudi Arabia and, and, and Emirates interested in Yemen are at odds, and the new council was orchestrated to represent these divergent interests, and views, of course, with different and on those kind of who have been elected, they've got uh, different military capacities. Um, uh, it is unlikely that this council will achieve any anything that will bring any good, you know, to Yemen and Yemenis. Surely, what they um, have all in common, but but the, I mean, as I said, they have different interests. Those those members of the council, they have different agenda, different interests. But what, what, the only thing that they have in common is that, um, uh, they, uh, they, they, they share, um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, their anti-Houthi sentiments. And as we know, the Houthis kind of refused to join, um, this, this fiasco. And, um, and I think they're right. Although kind of Yemenis themselves, um, uh, I mean, Houthis, they're not a power to reckon with for Yemenis because They've, the more pressure the international community put on them, the more pressure they put on Yemenis who are under their con- control. So what I what I what I think this um, uh, the ingredients put uh, in this council is actually an ingredient an ingredient for a disastrous future in Yemen, unfortunately. But you know, I mean, we always hope for the best. We never know, you know. Um, we always hope that things will not turn as as it seems.
No, but conflict doesn't resolve itself magically. So, so what do you think the, um, the, the result will be? Do you think that this presidential council will last? I mean, you're, you're already saying that you think it will increase the hostilities rather than, uh, you know, try to negotiate a, the, a permanent ceasefire, which is what had you said is supposedly the main task of the presidential council. Like, do you, do you, think it will collapse in a heap or or make things worse the the thing is though i don't know we, we're not sure what what will how whether it's gonna you know kind of maintain some sort of form or shape with some kind of uh processes that will lead to anything like you know peace negotiation or you know kind of other or, or otherwise war but what i know is that the council um and al-alibi who is heading the council um have emphasized that the uh, the main purpose is peace negotiation um, and um, they all already kind of assume that you know that they might fail so they said if, if it failed if, if these kind of peace negotiation fail or uh, Houthis refuse to engage they have the military capacity to continue on with the military option which I think is, is more likely to 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 happen um, but the what will what will happen and even if the council succeeds in and continuing to in, in operating on the ground because now they're still in Riyadh right and we're not sure when they are planning to the council when when members are are, are planning to go back to Yemen and you know kind of uh, take take on re, kind of government responsibility from Yemen and even there is a possibility that you know that they might be might not be able to go back to Yemen because the Houthis might attack them you know, because that happened in the past. So, so, so the, this is, there is still a big question mark on whether they will be able to actually operate from Yemen. Other scenario would be is that because, um, uh, the different, the different kind of members of the council represent different regions, which also kind of speaks to set, certain kind of proposal that was, um, that the, uh, the Gulf and international community pushed for uh, during the uh, national dialogue, and it was part of the Gulf Cooperation Initiative, which is dividing Yemen into federations, so different federations. So, so it seems like those members of the council each is actually representing region that was supposed to, you know, kind of uh, to 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 become a certain certain federation or region ruled by federal government. So, what happens again? They might not be able to operate on the ground, but um, there is a possibility that whatever agenda they have, and of course we're speaking now about the Gulf, the Emirates and Saudis agenda, which is transferring kind of hostilities to manage hostilities or kind of um, uh, uh, making hostilities run by Yemenis themselves, and at the same time kind of reshaping the society, you know, and the, the kind of the politics and the the, the demography in line with uh, this agenda of federations that are kind of initially stated in the in the gulf um initiative so that if that happens that of course gonna lead to kind of a, a terrible civil war and might end up with in, in creating fragmented yemeni um yemeni kind of little kind of semi-states or federations uh, governed by uh by the councils or the member of the council so i, I really don't know but it's uh it's it's very hard to tell, but what I it, but also it, it's very hard to tell how things are gonna kind of uh, turn out. But at the same time, it's very hard to see any 
any positive outcome out of it, especially because the Houthis, um, they are refusing to engage with that. And as I said, and rightly so, because it just, it is, it is, it's not representing Yemenis, it's not made, it's not created or initiated by Yemenis themselves through a long dialogue. Um, you know, with inputs from, from, from the grassroots, from Yemeni parties, different parties. That was Yemeni activist and academic Camilla El Ariani about the current situation in Yemen. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in to the show. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. I caution to First Nations peoples that this ad contains sensitive content about the stolen generations. For many Aboriginal Victorian community members, the trauma from forced removal still runs deep. In consultation with community, the Victorian Government has developed the Stolen Generations Reparations Package. We acknowledge there is still more to be done to address injustice experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For more information, contact 1800 566 071 or please visit the website. A 3CR supporter. FreeCR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR. 855am, 3CR Digital, and streaming on 3cr.org.au. The following show is a repeat and may contain some out-of-date information. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and Stream Life at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 151st program of Think Again, live from the 3CR studio. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for 25 years. Jacques isn't with us today, but I do have the pleasure of speaking with Claire G. Coleman again. Listeners might remember her talking on the program in late January about the myths and the lies underpinning Australia Day 
and what and the lies and myths is what passes for mainstream history, I guess. Claire is an Ungar author. Her latest book is Lies, Damn Lies, a personal exploration of the impact of colonisation. Welcome back to the program, Claire. It's such a uh, pleasure to speak to you again. I had fun last time. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. I did too. So um, for our listeners, Claire's going to help us think about the best ways to do something about the devastating treatment of Aboriginal people in this country and their situation. There's been a lot of debate around what should come first, for example, an Aboriginal voice to Parliament or a treaty. And of course, today is the last day of Reconciliation Week. So Reconciliation Week, what's that all about and how does it fit in with all the other um, moves and measures and actions and organisations? Um, it's quite a lot to think about and I know my own brain can freeze up when I consider that uh, the decisions affecting Aboriginal people need to come from Aboriginal people themselves, which would seem obvious but we seem to keep having to say it again and again. <laughs> so I'm very grateful to have Claire with us today. Uh, um, last week, Jacques and I talked about the results from the federal election. So firstly, Claire, I want to ask you what you think of the results of the federal election and do you think they set the ground for some real change? Well, I think the, um, the most important thing about the federal election isn't really who won as such. What's important is what, who and what lost. And what lost the election was not only the, the Liberal Party resoundingly lost the election, but the Liberal Party's um, kind of policies driven by hate yeah. um, were, were received a resounding no thanks from the Australian populace. And, and that to me, it's not even that they lost. It's that they, they ran heavily on hateful rhetorics of various sorts mm-hmm. um, in, in, ver- in electorate. And, and also they ran on climate change denial. They ran open transphobes. They ran on a far-right, hateful yeah. point of view. And they were resoundingly beaten by what they, what they called the teal bath mm. at the time, <laughs> and, um, which, which is it's, um, interesting that um, what they lost is on social, um, economically conservative social liberals, mm. um, which is what the Liberal Party mm. started as. Yeah. So they, the kind of, they've shifted further to the right and the, pe- the people who should have been their, um, their foundational core um, sent them a resounding no thanks. Yeah. Um, and that is far more interesting than in, in the idea of who won. And sure, mm. um, in, in reality, just like the last election, I mean the one before, mm. um, when like the Liberal Party won, people said that the Liberal Party didn't win, Bill Shorten lost. Mm. Well, this election... Um, the Liberal Party didn't, um, Labor didn't win, and even more so because they were reliant heavily on, on um, preferences from the Greens and, and the Independents. Mm-hmm. So not only did Labor, Labor won technically, but what really happened was um, uh, there was a, a reaction against the Liberal Party, which led to the Liberal Party ending up with the least seats um, they've had since the 70s. Incredible. And um, or maybe even longer. So they've, they've never been demolished so severely mm. but it was I don't think it was a vote for change I think it was a vote against um, change in the wrong direction yeah. so yeah. what what we what we might be having is a, um, a return to the Australia I grew up in which is Australia um, where the Liberal Party were economically conservative but relatively socially liberal 
and um, where we had a democracy that seemed healthy, which we yeah. haven't had for a while. So yeah. I'm, I'm quite pleased by the by the results of the election, and and I'm quite pleased, of course, that the Labor Party ran on an Aboriginal rights platform, among other things. I'm pleased to have um, Labor's not only Labor's um, members in the Parliament, but also their cabinet. The new cabinet that, that um, they swore in what's only a few days ago now mm. seems to be a um, kind of the most diverse cabinet in Australian history. Yeah. So those those things are real change. Whether or not there's going to be change in policy or whether it's going to cause a genuine change and improvement in the lives of people, that that still needs to be um, needs to be um, seen. We don't know what's going to happen in the long term, of course, with this government. But what we do know is that governments always make symbolic gestures. Mm-hmm. And the symbolic gestures by the Labor Party currently are positive ones, whereas the symbolic gestures by the um, outgoing Liberal Party were negative and divisive. So that's yeah. a, that's a, that's a, that itself is a positive change. Yeah. And I guess um, uh, what we were arguing last week was the activism needs to go on, but maybe cracks have opened where we can, we can influence, where there's a greater capacity to influence change. And, yeah, and that, that, that too is important. We can't stop fighting because um, you know, even, even ABC's um, Vote Compass listed the um, Labor Party as essentially um, centre motto on everything. Mm. Um, that you know, people think of the Labor Party as a left-wing party, yeah. and they're not. They're a centrist party. Yeah. Um, though, hopefully, um, the fear of the um, socially liberal teals and of losing votes to the Greens, which they should be scared of, they really should be scared yeah. of. Though the Greens took most most of the seats, the Greens took, they took them from the Liberals. Mm. They only took one from Labor that I know of mm-hmm. in the last election. They took yeah, three. That's interesting. Two of them. Two were um, safe Liberal seats. One was a safe Labor seat in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I th- but I think I think the lesson learned from this election is that um, moving politically further to the right is a losing game. Yeah. And yeah. I, th- I think part of our activism needs to be to constantly remind them mm. um, what got them voted in, which yeah. is preferences from people to the left of them, and maybe mm. that, will put, that will push them to the left. And um, I think Claire, you did talking of uh, symbolic positive. Symbolic gestures. You did mention to me um, beforehand that one of the first acts of the new PM Albanese was to put up an Aboriginal flag. Yeah, he um, he put up the Aboriginal flag um, on where I'm not sure where it was, but you know, in his press conferences, <laughs> he had great. an Aboriginal flag and a Torres Strait Islander flag behind him, yeah. which of course um, Scott Morrison never did. Yeah, and and I'm also thinking of the um, he's made a commitment um, to having a voice. Mm-hmm. in the constitution for Aboriginal people. So um, there was a famous petition by Aboriginal leaders in 2017, the Uluru Station, uh, sorry, not Station, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and that proposes a First Nations voice to the Australian Parliament and that this First Nations voice be enshrined in Australian constitution. So it's pretty fixed once it's in the constitution. And so he... he prioritised this in his victory speech on election night, which I thought was great, um, even though I know there are, um, there's still a wide range of views around the Uluru Station from the um, Statement from the Heart. Um, I understand that the Greens think that a treaty should come first. 
um, before the voice of Parliament, though I'm not sure where they place truth-telling, to tell you the truth. So w what are your thoughts about that, um, about a voice to Parliament and what needs to be done, Claire? I, I, I think a voice to Parliament is a good thing, and I think um, a treaty is a good thing. Mm. And I, I think that, from my understanding, a lot of the um, dispute and debate among Aboriginal people, and as my friend Sally Scales um, the um, Anangu artist once said to me, she said, we need to remember that it's racist to think that Aboriginal people can't disagree with each other. Yeah. Um, and, and that was an interesting point she made, that we, we are allowed to disagree. We're yeah. allowed to have um, Aboriginal people across the political spectrum. That's fine. Yeah. And, but most of the dispute's been around the order of things, whether, you know, treaty first or voice first. Mm. Some people believe that if you have a, um, a voice first it'll derail the treaty process. Mm. Other people say, if you've got treaty first, we'll never get the voice. Mm. Mm. <coughs> I, Sorry yeah. for coffee. But I, I'm, I'm of a, I'm, I've got a third opinion. That, yeah. that seems to be only my opinion, but I think truth has to come first. Mm -hmm. um, because you can't, you can't... If you think of the, think of the race in Australia as like a, a, a cultural illness, you can't fix an illness until you admit you're ill. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and Australia, as long as Australia pretends, as long as Australia enshrines lies mm -hmm. and um, disempowers truth, then um, voice and treaty will not only never happen, but they'll probably be um, pointless gestures until we understand what this country actually is. Yeah, and to, I know we talked last time on the program, you talked about the nature of those lies and <laughs> what... Can you articulate what you think really needs to be owned in truth-telling by White Australia? Sure. There's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be owned by White Australia. <laughs> one, one is um, the basic statement that um, that was in China, Mabo, and Mabo Day was today, so it is the anniversary of, of the Mabo um, decision. Mm -hmm. And the Mabo decision says that, uh, that Aboriginal people were here before White before white mm -hmm. people arrived. Mm -hmm. That's illegally owned the land. Mm -hmm. And then Australians have this, this myth in, in the culture that the classic one is whenever there's a new group of refugees or, um, or immigrants arriving, white Australians just tend to say, like, quote to quote, we were here first. Yeah. When in reality, they, they weren't. The Mabo decision says that, no, you weren't here first. And of course, yeah. we already weren't here first, but, mm. I mean, the, you, you, um, Aboriginal people were here first. We were here first. White Australians were not here first. But mm. no definition could white Australians have been here first, yet there's, that's still enshrined within our culture. Mm. Um, and... The doctrine of discovery, which is this idea that um, Cook discovered an empty land and mm. from there the colony arose, that's also not true. Yeah. And that's the, that's the foundational myth on which Australia was built. So yeah. you've got to really... That, is, that one in particular is a myth that needs to be severely re-examined to work yeah. out why we still believe this. And I, I think Australian culture believes in the doctrine of discovery and in that Cook's arrival in 1770... Um, gave some mythical existence to the colony. Yeah. I think we need to examine why people believe that, why um, we can't, can't delete that from, the, from the, the country's mythology. Yeah. And, and I think we talked about that mythology is so pervasive. Um, 
is so pervasive. So you have a truth-telling in an Aboriginal... This is what I noticed. There'll be a program on television or radio about Aboriginal issues, and the truth will be owned, but then all the other programs ignore it and imply otherwise, like um, they'll be talking about a, a great hero in Australian history because... He discovered, you know, mm. he discovered land. He was an explorer. And, of course, he didn't discover, any, and it is a he, he didn't discover anything because Aboriginal people already knew it was there and they well, were living it's, there. It's the classic one that we don't think about is Batman. We, this, um, you know, they call, I think, City of Melbourne is still called, is still elected for Batman, is it? Mm, I'm not sure. I, um, I think, I think they're, so. They're, they're talking I'll about take changing a punt it. and say yes. They were talking about changing it. I'm not sure if it ever happened. But the... Um, um, Batman is, is seen as a hero mm. in Melbourne, mm. but in Tasmania, where he came from, he's seen as a um, as a violent, murderous villain. Mm. So we need, we need to talk about those truths. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll go to on that note. We'll go to some music and we'll come back in a few minutes. <laughs> All they do is talk, talk, talk on the radio, talk, talk, talk on the TV, want, want, want all the time, and hate, hate, hate what you need, buy, buy, buy what they sell, buy the lies that they tell, and you do well not to listen, business ain't in the business.
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. 3CR digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Today we have Noonga author Claire G. Coleman on the program and she's helping us look at what needs to be done in mainstream Australia um, for Aboriginal people and I guess by Aboriginal people, importantly. Um, we're broadcasting on the last day of Reconciliation Week and while, of course, I support the, uh, all the raised awareness and appreciation of Aboriginal culture and sharing and connection that increases through the activities of Reconciliation Week and not least the very, very generous welcome ceremonies by Aboriginal elders. Um, I'm wondering where Reconciliation Week fits in with things like not just proposals for a treaty and voice to Parliament, but all the other things that are happening around the place throughout the year. We have Harmony Day, Sorry Day, Freedom Day, there's NAIDOC, um, so... I guess, Claire, what sense do you make of all this? For me, um, in my confusion, they don't, they're not all talking to each other and sending out clear messages to me. But So maybe you can help me and help our listeners. I, I, I honestly wish I could help you. <laughs> I, I respect all these days, and I think that um, in kind of consciousness raising every one of these days is theoretically important. But in reality, even as someone who who um, works in this space. I, I, I write books about Aboriginal rights and I, um, I speak on the radio a lot about Aboriginal rights mm, and Aboriginal issues. Yeah. Even, even I, I should be in a position where I know everything that's going on. I can't keep track of um, Reconciliation Week, Freedom Day, um, NAIDOC Week, Sorry Day. <laughs> Um, You're trying all, to remember them all. I'm trying to remember them. I'm, I failed. But <laughs> Marbo Day, which is today, and some of them, and 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 some of them are thoroughly misunderstood in our society, and that and that's part of the issue. And that, and they, and often they turn out to be made just nothing but a distraction from the real issues. Mm. Um, Reconciliation Week can be one of the worst in that um, someone will do a reconciliation event and think that they've taken care of all their responsibilities towards Aboriginal people for the mm, whole year. And that's, yeah. that's not how it's supposed to work. That's yeah. not how we do things. Yeah. Um, but the, the and of course, um, Harmony Day is, is probably actually the worst of them. Um, people don't know this, but Harmony Day was originally, it put on the date of the international... Oh, I can't remember what they call it. Something anti-racist. It's, 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 it's International Anti-Racism Day. I can't remember the exact name mm, of it. Yeah. But it's supposed to be the day where, we, where countries um, engage with their racism and stop their racism. Yeah. Um, and talk about racism and, and, and imagine racism and, and consider it. Mm. But John Howard, when he instituted the day, called it Harmony Day. 
And rather than being about questioning racism, it came about let's all be let's all be like celebrate how happy and harmonious. Let's we be, are. all pretend we're harmonious and have <laughs> lots of hugs, which really is a, that's a severe distraction. Yeah. And reconciliation week is, is nothing but distraction. The ones that I I respect um, the most are Freedom Day, mm-hmm. which is August 23rd, mm-hmm. and that that was the day that that celebrates the day that Gough Whitlam. No, so it's, it celebrates the day that. Um, the Gringy walked off the um, the, jo- the job in Wavehill Station, yeah. and then um, because they weren't being paid, because probably. they weren't being paid. Um, that's right, they were being paid in rations. And they wanted oh. to be paid, and then when they when they walked off, it started off about as a protest against equal rights for equal rights, so protest against not being paid. But then in the end, they decided that the being paid wasn't enough. They wanted their land back, mm. and they sat. On, they, they refused to work and they refused to move and they sat in a protest camp for eight years. Mm. And eventually they won in that famous moment where Gough Whitlam handed them the land back and then poured sand through the hands of the, mm. of the movement's leader, Vincent Lingyawi. Mm. So that, that's celebrated on, on 23rd of August. And to me that okay. one's very important because that's the, the birth of the modern land rights movement mm-hmm. from then. Mabo Day is important because yeah. celebrating the hard work of Eddie Mabo in, for land rights is important. Sorry Day is important, but Sorry Day is 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 also is one of the most misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that people often think about it is Sorry Day is that it's a day for uh, to apologise, mm-hmm. but in reality, most Aboriginal people see Sorry Day using the Aboriginal English the Aboriginal English meaning of the word sorry, which is the word for sorry is means mourning. Oh. So if an Aboriginal person is talking about um, sorry time mm. um, or sorry business, they're not mm. talking about apologising about something. They're talking about go, returning to community or something to mourn. Mm. So to an Aboriginal person, the word sorry day um, or the, the, the concept of sorry day is a day for people to mourn our losses and mourn our stolen children. It's not a day we expect people to apologise. Oh. Which is, a, and of course people... Uh, the, the apology is a symbolic thing. Like, I'm, I'm sorry for the for what we've done. Yeah, but I would thought I thought it was a good thing because it's taking responsibility. I think it is a good thing to take responsibility, but mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of Aboriginal people on Sorry Day just want to be left alone oh. with their family, oh. and that's a, that's a complicated one. And it, oh. of course, there's there's nothing wrong with making a symbolic gesture and getting the gesture wrong. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a bad thing. I think it's it's. I would rather people try. Mm. To be to do the right thing and get it wrong, mm. then not try to do the right thing. Yeah. But there's a, it's the I think that even the, the way that that things are sorry they are looked at is an, it, that's also a distraction from what it's really all about and what yeah. what average rights is about. So all these things are incredibly complicated. Yeah. Um, I, I personally think that um, Marbo Day should be a national holiday. I believe mm-hmm. it should be. Okay. Um, but they, they won't have two things. One, because this country is racist. And secondly, <laughs> Australians don't have national holidays in winter. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, well, that is the classic. Well, there's a reason people have... Left field. Mm. No, it, no it's, it's true, though. Mm. Um, can you have, Do we have any national day off holidays, national holidays with a day off in winter? Mm. The answer is no, we don't. And there's the, one of the complaints about why we can't change the date of Australia Day is because then people will lose a public holiday in summer. 
Isn't it dreadful? And that's, that's, that's really like, damning. It's sort of I can see you laughing too, but it's. I know, I'm terrible. laughing, but it's 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 one of those things about Australians that's that's quirky and a bit f- like funny quirky, except when it affects people's lives. It's yeah. funny quirky that Australians will literally not give up a um, a public holiday yeah. on a in summer to have one in winter. Well, Claire, we're I can't believe it, but we're coming to the end of the program. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I, I speak too much. No, you, that's why you're on the program, because we'd love to hear from you, Claire. And I, I really, um, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. So I, I want to really thank you for coming on the program and it, it's bla- um, talking about these issues from, an ab- um, from your perspective and an Aboriginal perspective, an Aboriginal woman, women's perspective. Um, but uh, as much as you've illuminated and... Uh, the area for us, you've also left us with a lot more questions. <laughs> well, having, having questions is not bad. Again. That's right. <laughs> and that's why we're called Think Again. So we have to all think lots more after this program. And I, I would really like to uh, continue the conversation with you. I'll, 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 I'll come back any time. Just, just after Thank ask. you. Next week, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now, we're going to community announcements. And I think, Claire, we should give you the opportunity to spruik some of the in- really, really interesting things that you're doing. Absolutely. Well, first thing is I've got a, an exhibition at Incinerator Gallery on, um, in... Mooney Ponds? Ponds? I think it's in Mooney Ponds. It's Mooney, po- it's Mooney Valley Shire. Before. It's Mooney Valley Shire. So it's okay. in Cinemata Gallery, Mooney Valley Shire. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's an exhibition that goes from the 10th for about six weeks. So it goes from next Friday. And I've got another book out, another novel out, in about a month. Okay. What, do you know what that's called? It's called Enclave. It's, Enclave. Already, it's already been printed. So, cause Fabulous. It, yeah, so that, that's, that's out on the last Tuesday of this month. Oh, I think we'll bring you back to talk about that. Yeah, that'd be good. good. Okay, well, thank you so much, Claire G. Coleman. And uh, just another community announcement. Please, everyone, if you can, donate to 3CR's Radiothon. Uh, Go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Uh, You can nominate your favourite shows in the online form, for example... Think again. <laughs> I think you should do that. Or you can phone the station during business hours and pay by credit card. The number is 03-9419-8377. That's 94198377. And that's a Melbourne number, of course. So thanks to our listeners for tuning into Think Again on 3CR Community Radio today. If you want to contact us, you can email borderlandsborders at borderlands.org.au. Our programs are available by podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the following program, Jailbreak, which gives a voice and a platform to our sisters and brothers in prison. To bring us into this program, we have Milku Mana by King Stingray. Oh, daddy, I don't know. 
3CR, here to stay. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Hearing now from US veteran anti-war activist Kathy Kelly about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. What follows is the result of a course of several conversations between fellow activists Nick Motten and Brian Terrell and US actor Martin Sheen. And it's possible that in the near future the statement will be delivered by Martin Sheen. But first, Cathy, can you introduce your fellow workers on this paper? Oh, sure. Well, um, Brian and Nick are two people who have been collaborating for some time on the Ban Killer Drones campaign. We were grateful for voiceovers that Martin Sheen, an actor, has already done for a TV spot 15-second ads that would call for an end to weaponized drones. And we are in dialogue with him quite a bit lately, uh, hoping that he may be willing to make a statement that has to do with the war in Ukraine. You know, he had played a role of a a fictional president in in a very popular TV series at one point. So, But I think it is important to do, at this point, to make every overture we possibly can uh, to people who who might sort of uh, accelerate efforts to bring an end to the war in Ukraine. It's, uh, it's such a crucial time for people to start making the steps of conciliation, and instead we, we see greater and greater escalation. Well, can I ask you if you'd read A Path to Peace in Ukraine? Oh, well, surely, and I'm, I'm happy to do that, uh, representing the other two authors, Nick Mottern and Brian Terrell. Hello, friends. It is being said that killer drones are a game-changer in the war in Ukraine, but the game-changer we need is a commitment by all the warring parties to stop promoting war in Ukraine. We condemn Moscow's violent aggression against Ukraine and sympathize with all of the victims. At the same time, we must take a look at the conduct of our own country, the United States, and demand that our government takes immediate steps to stop the killing in Ukraine. What are these steps? One, work with all parties to the war for an immediate ceasefire. Two, announce that the United States will, under no circumstances, use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or elsewhere and will work to achieve that guarantee from Russia and other nuclear powers. Three, discontinue sending weapons and United States military personnel 
into Ukraine and work with Russia and other European nations to join in this initiative. Four, discontinue any military and political support for any individuals and groups in Ukraine who advocate white supremacy and Nazism. Five, pledge to join with all parties to the war in assisting the resettlement of refugees and rebuilding of Ukraine. And at the same time, pledge United States assistance to nations in which the United States has been involved in military action since 9-11. We in the United States are subject to propaganda from all sides in the Ukraine war, including from our own government. But we are at a point in the history of the world and humanity in which our very survival depends on our taking guidance from those calling for an end to the killing. I am a Catholic and a devoted fan of Dorothy Day, Daniel and Phil Berrigan, and Thomas Burton, and of course of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. All these people would agree with Pope Francis, who has said, May the weapons fall silent, so that those who have the power to stop the war hear the cry for peace coming from all humanity. How can we fulfill our obligations to stop our, our global climate catastrophe if we pour our resources and energies into wars? Earlier, I mentioned killer drones. I want to end by saying that I feel we all must reflect on the popularity of a weapon that we humans can use as our proxy to kill other humans. What does this kind of weapon and thinking mean for our future as humans? The use of weaponized drones is a history of assassination, gross harming and terrorizing of civilians, of making killing easier and easier, and of causing severe emotional problems for drone operators, sometimes resulting in suicide because of what they witness. Proliferation of weaponized drones can lead to nuclear annihilation. They settle nothing. They make the world more dangerous. They must be internationally banned. We must ask ourselves whether drone war thinking is enabling proxy wars, because proxy wars are now not only causing great human suffering, they are leading inevitably to the end of humanity. Thank you for considering these thoughts. And of course, there are many, many other people who have similar thoughts, but find it difficult in our mass media to get their voices across. Well, I, I think that's surely true. I think there are some indications in both the Washington Post and the New York Times, major mainstream media papers here, of a beginning suggestion that there has to be restraint in, in the United States support for war in Ukraine and a suggestion that uh, this is something that it, it could lead to uh, insoluble and ongoing problems, at least recognition of the terrible, terrible dangers of, of consistently escalating. But um, when it comes to the televised presentations, uh, the drumbeat for continued war and a sense of victory and Nancy Pelosi saying we won't stop until victory is attained is very, very dangerous and disturbing. I don't think people in the United States are cognizant of the horrors of nuclear war. There's been such an assurance that, well, it's not really going to happen. 
and uh, as a measure of denial, even in amongst the defense pro- professionals and and the military suppliers. And of course, their life meanings are coming from being people who uh, become more and more proficient at waging war. Talk about Richard Falk. He was a very important person a number of years ago regarding Palestine and also what Jeremy Corbyn has been saying. Well, I so appreciate Richard Falk for saying we benefit from describing traditional war and geopolitical war. And he describes President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Russia as a traditional war, and and he condemns it. But he also talks about the geopolitical struggle simultaneously being waged in the region. He believes that it's uh, definitely a time for conciliatory steps rather than escalation. And he points out what these steps could be, such as um, clamoring immediately for a ceasefire, working toward negotiation, recognizing the security needs of Russia as well as of Ukraine. The idea that NATO is, you know, almost like a cartoonized version of things, the good guys and anybody who is not going along with uh, U.S. and NATO demands are the bad guys isn't helpful at all. And Jeremy Corbyn, uh, recognizing now how absent elected leaders are from any forward-moving way of dealing with climate catastrophe, pandemics and nuclear weapon proliferation. For instance, we in the United States have to recognize that our entire Congress, including Barbara Lee, who used to be the one person who would refuse to support wars, uh, the so-called squad, they've all, Bernie Sanders, they have all voted for extremely bloated military budget, which is now moving into, I believe, $840 billion for one year, the $40 billion for war in Ukraine, or military and other assistance to Ukraine. So Corbyn is saying we, we can't rely on these elected leaders any longer. We have to start to sort of realign the people who have the vision of a, a survivable future start to build our communities and our organizations and build as much solidarity as we possibly can. And if you think of how much of that money should have been paid to Afghanistan in reparation for the war on their country for all those years. Well, that's a particularly bleak situation. You know, Afghanistan has been pushed to the brink of collapse country is not producing enough food and the prices for food are skyrocketing. People are unemployed and desperate and uh, they are now saying, according to the United Nations officials, that one million Afghan children are facing severe acute malnourishment and could be that people just simply will not have the wherewithal to feed their families and you can't just keep on giving handouts, and a lot of the handouts are unfortunately uh, under the control of people who don't distribute the food equally, and and that's very difficult for the United Nations to um, manage to overcome because there are so many corrupt 
entities within who have a great deal of power within Afghanistan. Do you want to make any comment, Kathy, about the the most recent shooting? And we know that there are shootings virtually monthly or maybe weekly in the United States. That nothing seems to be done. No, I don't think the will is there. I think the Republicans um, don't care. They want to um, solve the problems of uh, school shootings by uh, turning the schools into fortresses and homeschooling, but they do not want to reduce the number of guns. And I think the the problem of of our country having as basically the dominant religion, militarism, is also feeding into the extreme danger of people glorifying having weapons, using weapons, feeling protected and secure because of their weapons. You know, this militarization of our society is is something that's deep and has many, many tentacles. And there's been an acquiescence to it on the part of universities, corporations pretty much owned by the National Rifle Association, lobbyists, and other now new groups of, of weapon makers and uh, by the people who are manufacturing the weapons that we sell all over the world. Our top crop is weapons. We sell more weapons than the next 11 countries in the world that are major arms manufacturers combined. So this kind of militarism is, of course, going to lead to more and more people having guns and afflicted with various kinds of mental illness, believing that, that this is what they're called to do that this is a good thing. Uh, It's extremely dangerous, and I think uh, the grief and the agony afflicting so many people who've lost their loved ones and the child survivors in Uvalde, I mean, they will be traumatized for the rest of their lives, as are the soldiers who come back from wars with PTSD. And and when you think about the shooting in Buffalo, you know, that was a community that had nurtured care and mutual concern for one another uh, for so many, many years, even though uh, they'd been neglected in terms of social services in many significant ways because of the racism in our society. So what we are facing right now is, is, is going to call on people everywhere to build community, share resources, try to live more simply, and repudiate the idea that killing solves problems. And as you said, that deep-seated racism in the United States. Yes. I think a a tolerance of this notion of white supremacy, we see it with um, the handling of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and, and the ways in which it's, uh, it's it's very difficult for the people investigating to get Republicans, for instance, to comply with subpoenas to testify in, in front of groups. And we see um, President Trump being fated and uh, still holding a great deal of control over many people in the country. And I think that it's got to do with the kind of fear and greed that feed racism. Well, you're coming into summer, we're coming into winter. You're starting to feel climate change? Ah, yes. Um, 
you know, there are wildfires raging in many parts of the country where the ground is very arid and dry and the uh, heat waves have been escalating. I think that the reality of climate catastrophes is beginning to become so much more evident to people, especially the younger generation, and I hope somehow they'll be able to persist without falling into despair. You know, Jan, I just today watched uh, about eight young people in a collective at the Agro-Paris Tech Institution who were going at their graduation to uh, make an appeal. Well, they made an appeal to all of their peers saying, dessert, <laughs> don't go along with these systems that will continue to perpetuate ways of engineering and promoting the values of major corporations that don't care about the planet. Do not work for those people. And and they each uh, called upon their peers to desert the uh, profession that they had been trained for. Thank you, Jan. And, you know, you can find that uh, video on YouTube. Uh, it's very, very compelling, and I, it's actually, to me, a source of great hope. Too. They, the, the young people all spoke in French, but there were English subtitles, and I, I think your listening audience would really like to view that. And the title of it? Well, it's a call to dessert. And as Kathy says, it is in French, so if you've got good French or, you know, how to translate, it's... A Call to Dessert, and of course that was Kathy Kelly, anti-war activist from the US. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au. We love a good book. Online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. You're listening to 3CR Radio's breakfast program. This morning we're bringing you alternative news, community action and updates. The topic that's dominated the mass media over the past weeks is China's move into the Pacific. 
So I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan to put some sense into the debate. We're given the impression, Nick, that China's just this new boy or girl on the block, but China's been around for a long time in the Pacific. When I was living in Fiji nearly a quarter of a century ago, I was writing articles about China engaging with the Pacific Islands. Um, In the late 1990s, when I was in Fiji, China was providing uh, police training for the Fiji military forces at that time. There was a Chinese telecommunications base in Kiribati, and there was a scare in those days about China. So this is not new. And while China is an incredibly important power globally, um, not just in the Pacific Islands, I think there's a number of areas where, where the framing that you see in the Australian media and the US media is completely obscure. And I'll just flag a couple of those. I mean, firstly, China is not the only player in what's a very crowded and competitive field of engagement with the Pacific Islands. As we see China, you know, diplomats coming in engaging with Pacific Island governments, um, seeking to uh, promote uh, economic, trade, technical deals and so on, There are many, many players like that, very active at the moment in the Pacific. Um, The European Union particularly is is active. Last uh, September, they uh, announced a cooperation uh, in the Indo-Pacific agenda. And a key part of that is uh, very close cooperation with Pacific Island countries. France, as we've talked about many times on this program, is a very active player, has been the uh, president of the European Union Council for the last six months, has a very active program around seabed mining, around uh, oceans exploration and research, and so on. Japan has a regular summit um, called PALM, the Pacific Area Leaders Meeting, between Japanese uh, ministers and Pacific Island leaders. And indeed, the Japanese foreign minister has just been visiting uh, Fiji. Germany has uh, become a, a dialogue partner. This is one of 18 countries that have a formal relationship as dialogue partners with the Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional intergovernmental organisation. Indonesia is an associate member within the Melanesian Spearhead Group, which is the five Melanesian uh, groupings, uh, uh, countries closest to Australia. So while China is a significant player and it's a big economy, um, it's not the only game in town. And I think, uh, you know, this sort of hysteria that we see often in the Australian media doesn't put China in the context where there's a whole lot of people who are interested in engaging with the Pacific. Um, they've got nearly a dozen votes in the United Nations, a significant voting bloc as part of the Asia-Pacific bloc, and also incredible amounts of resources that uh, are there. So that's a really important thing that I think people need to factor in, that China is not alone in wanting to engage with island nations at the moment. But certainly they bring a lot to the table as a, as a major power. While you're talking about that, Nick, they are talking about the fear that there'll be a military base, a Chinese military base in the Pacific. How many foreign military bases are there in the Pacific now? Well, there are dozens and dozens of bases by the Western powers, managed and operated by the Western powers. The United States, obviously, particularly in the northern Pacific, um, and this goes back to 1898 when the the Americans defeated the Spanish in the Spanish-American War. Um, and seized the Philippines, um, seized Guam, the uh, the coup um, in Hawaii, uh, where U.S. Marines, backing the interests of planter and missionary uh, elements, um, overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy and established Hawaii as a, a U.S. dependency. And so you have Pearl Harbor Naval Base 
um, in Hawaii, uh, Schaefer military barracks, an enormous U.S. Army barracks in uh, and 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 base in uh, Hawaii, the uh, Aprahaba naval base in Guam, um, the Kwajalein missile range, tests into ballistic missiles and uh, uh, missile defence systems, so firing missiles from California to splash down in Kwajalein Lagoon, one of the largest lagoons in the Pacific Islands. And uh, the U.S. has a, a major facility that's been there for decades. France, too, uh, has a, a, a naval base at Pont Chalex in New Caledonia and so on. So I think, um, you know, there's a certain cynicism where people are getting all head up about military bases in the Pacific but uh, uh, and Chinese militarization, and that's certainly a concern. Most Pacific people don't want Chinese military bases just as they don't want other military bases in the region. And that's why you have indigenous campaigns um, looking at, uh, you know, the theft of land in Guam, in Hawaii, in other locations uh, related to the militarization of the region. So this is not new. The Pacific's living with the legacy of uh, more than 300 nuclear tests by Britain, France, United States. Um, and unlike China and Russia, the United States has um, refused to sign the three protocols of the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, which is one of the initiatives taken by the Pacific to address this militarization, to try and uh, step out of the nuclear arms race in the 1980s. And uh, you see that once again with the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, which will be holding a meeting, uh, first meeting of this new nuclear ban treaty we held uh, in June uh, in Austria. Um, Ten Pacific countries, including New Zealand, have signed this treaty. Will Australia join them? That's a, a real question. And then we have the Australian base or planning a new base on Manus. Yeah, I mean, Australia has a very active uh, defence cooperation program all around the region and uh, a program called the Pacific Maritime uh, Security Program, PSMP. Uh, it's a $2 billion program that's been uh, bipartisan under both Labor and Coalition for many years, supplying patrol boats uh, to Pacific Island countries, deploying um, Royal Australian Navy personnel. Uh, so there's small teams of, of uh, Australian Navy people in uh, um, a dozen Pacific countries working with the patrol boat program. Now, these are really important for maritime surveillance, uh, for fisheries programs and so on, but give Australia a, a significant intelligence advantage. Um, and Australia is currently expanding uh, military facilities um, uh, related to this program. So as you mentioned, in Lombrum, the United States and Australia have been talking about expanding the Lombrum Naval Base, which is a small PNG facility uh, in Manus Island, where we used to detain... Uh, offshore uh, processing uh, for asylum seekers and, uh, and refugees. At the moment, um, Australia is building up a, uh, a patrol boat base in the west of the Solomon Islands. Australia is uh, rebuilding the uh, Vanuatu Mobile Force barracks uh, in Port Vila. So Australia has extensive programs through the Defence Cooperation Program, uh, through the um, uh, Pacific Maritime Surveillance Program and so on. There's a, a very strong engagement from the Australian Defence Force and this is part of the problem. For a long time, you know, the United States regarded the Pacific as an American lake. It had this string of military bases across the northern Pacific. It had Australia and New Zealand as allies through the ANZUS Treaty. And now I think the U.S. is feeling uh, the competition, not just from the Chinese, although obviously that's the largest strategic competition that they face in the region, but even with, say, France and the European Union. And we saw that with the AUKUS Agreement, where the three Anglosphere powers, Australia, Britain and the United States, regarded France as a hindrance to their strategy in the region, not as an assistant, and so brutally and uh, cynically ruptured the, uh, the submarine deal that Australia had with France. 
that's a, a sign that it's not simply China that's the only player in broad strategic competition in the region. And maybe it, it's a fact, Nick, that some of the media reporting on the Chinese in the Pacific gives the impression that these Pacific Islanders, they're a bit backward, they need our protection. It constantly underplays the attempts to leverage this competition. Pacific Island countries, as small island developing states, have been for centuries, literally, manoeuvring between great and powerful empires. Um, The British, the French, the Japanese during the Second World War, the United States ever since the Second World War and so on. And what we see is that Pacific Island countries, most of them, have a policy that they want to be friends to all, enemies to none, that they are willing to engage with countries, regardless of politics, if it can open ways for economic opportunities, for development funding, to address the priorities that the Pacific's put forward around climate change, around development, around ocean management and so on. As I say, the hysteria about China uh, really overshadows the adroit nature that Pacific countries, as we speak, are engaged in this dance with a number of partners. So, for example, Fiji. Fiji is a member of the non-aligned movement, joined in 2011 as, a, as the second Pacific Island country that's formerly a member of the non-aligned movement, so it doesn't want to be part of the US bloc, doesn't want to be part of the Chinese bloc, but wants to be non-aligned. And so we've seen over the last week that Fiji um, yesterday was hosting a meeting with China, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi as part of his regional tour across eight countries. But also last week, Fiji joined the US-led Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. Piece of jargon is a new economic partnership agreement that the United States is forging with Japan, with Australia, with 14 countries, really as a trading block to counter Chinese 